So in 2008, in the city of Attleboro, Massachusetts, they, they wrote a letter to a woman named Eileen Wilbur to collect a balance on a past due water bill. Now this particular bill was over a year old and so the time had come for them to, uh, to collect. And so here's the letter verbatim um, that she received. You are hereby notified that an outstanding utility balance for the period from July 1st, 2007 through June 30th, 2008 in the amount of one cent remains unpaid. This amount with interest brings the total due to one cent. Please pay this amount by December 10th or the amount of one cent plus penalties of up to $48 will be recorded as a lien on your real estate tax bill for the third quarter of fiscal year 2009 as required by law, Chapter 487, Acts of 1954. Make checks payable to the city of Attleboro. Now, it's comical, but it's true. This actually happened. In fact, this story, you may have remembered, received national attention. And for starters, Eileen is a 74-year-old blind woman. She can't even read this letter. Her daughter read it to her. Um, and instead of apologizing when, when, when the media got wind of it, the city actually became defensive. Saying, well, you know, actually, the bill is past due. And these letters are auto-generated, and so it really wasn't their fault. If she had just paid the bill, you know, none of this would have happened. Not to mention the fact that the city spent $42 or 42 cents on postage to pay to send this letter, which more than covered, 42 times covered the past due bill. Now, it's easy for us to roll our eyes at the absurdity of the whole situation. I mean, in fact, the, the city lacked compassion for one of its senior citizens, the city uh, lacked awareness for a flawed system that would send out a, uh, a bill for one cent. The city lacked wisdom to just easily forgive the debt instead of uh, wasting taxpayers' money to go and uh, collect on it. And so when we hear this story, who do we immediately and instinctively identify with? Well, it's Eileen, right? We, we see this woman and we're going, you know, uh, without exception, all of us identify with her. In fact, we applause her for refusing to go quietly into the night to, 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 to call the media outlets and say, can you believe that the city would do this? And she fought back against the insensitivity and the incompetency. And so without question, every single one of us in this room is on Eileen's side because we would never lack compassion, awareness, and wisdom when it comes to matters of forgiveness. And yet, when it comes to forgiveness, if we're willing to be honest, I think we're often more like the city of Attleboro than Eileen. See, none of us are experts at forgiveness. We all fail when it comes to these matters. We fail to see a person in the midst of an argument in favor of proving a point. We're often hardened and unwilling to admit our faults, unwilling to own our sin and pridefully focus on the sin of others. Many times we fail to choose the path of wisdom and foolishly hold on to bitterness. So if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we could all grow in compassion, awareness, and wisdom when it comes to our willingness and eagerness to embody a Christ-like forgiveness. 
This morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 45, and we're looking at this remarkable story of forgiveness. In fact, it's the climax of the story of Joseph and his brothers, and in this story we're going to see three movements. First, we're going to see forgiveness extended. The time has come. We've been waiting for it. It's been building for Joseph to extend forgiveness to his brothers. And what's remarkable is is not that he forgives, but uh, the, the, the manner in which he does it. He doesn't just say, hey, it's okay. Hey, look, the past is the past. Let's just forget about it. In fact, he has not forgotten what it's felt like to be betrayed and sold into slavery. And so what he does is offer real, genuine forgiveness. He decides to release the relational debt that exists between he and his brothers. Because that's what we do when we forgive. We are releasing a debt. So we'll see forgiveness extended. And second, we'll see forgiveness explained. Joseph explains why he's able to offer that kind of forgiveness. We're going to find that it's deeply rooted in his belief in the sovereignty and providence of God. In other words, his faith is what drives his forgiveness. And finally, we'll see forgiveness experienced. In this movement, we're going to see that forgiveness extends beyond the theoretical and becomes actual. Joseph shows tangible love towards his brothers, and it changes the way that he interacts with them. He begins to serve them. He begins to bless them. They feel and experience in real time forgiveness. So we'll see forgiveness extended, explained, and experienced. Look with me at verse 1 again. To see forgiveness extended. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Verse 2, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So if you remember from last week, Joseph had uh, came up with this plan to to kind of trap Benjamin, he had put in the silver cup in, in his bag, and Benjamin has been found guilty for stealing the silver cup, and he's been sentenced to stay behind in Egypt as a servant. And the other brothers are free to go. But Joseph and his steward says, you know, you guys aren't guilty. You guys didn't steal the cup. You can go back home to your father. But Judah steps up in this moving speech, and he begs for Benjamin's release. And he says, listen, if you're going to take Benjamin... Take me instead, my life for his. And when Joseph or when Judah finishes the, 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 the whole emotion of the, the, the last 22 years of having been betrayed and what he's gone through, and now finally seeing this, this change in his brothers, this willingness to give their life in place of his for the sake of their father, it's too much for Benjamin. And the weight and the moment uh, uh, overwhelms him. And he clears the Egyptian court so there's no guards, no advisors, uh, no interpreters. It's just Joseph and his brothers. And he begins to weep in front of them. And this is like an ugly cry. You know what I'm talking about? Where where he just comes undone. And it's so loud that the people who've cleared the room can hear what's going on. And 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 it's such that uh, the report of it starts to go out into the whole house. Such that even 
Pharaoh's house hears of it. And then Joseph makes the big reveal. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now, for a moment, I want you to put yourself in the brother's shoes. Here's this guy who's got absolute power, and he's just come undone. He's losing it. He's made everyone leave the room. And he's just in this uh, emotionally volatile position. And so you're just wondering, what is he about to do? I mean, we all make some really foolish, harsh, and rash decisions in these moments of emotional um, vulnerability. And you're trying to process the event as it unfolds, right? You see this guy coming undone, and then he drops this bombshell. I am Joseph. And you don't even have a category for thinking that, that he's alive, let alone the most powerful person in the world. And so you're, you're just shell-shocked, right? You can't think. You can't speak. You haven't seen Joseph in 22 years. And the last time you saw him, you had just beaten him negotiated his sale, put an iron collar around his neck, shackled his feet, and sold him into slavery. And now, not only is he alive, but he's the most powerful man in the world. He has the power to make them pay like nobody else. He could make them suffer like no one else on earth could make them suffer. Because the reality is, putting the cup aside, putting all of the Joseph shenanigans aside, they are really guilty for real crimes against their brother, and they deserve the full weight and justice of the law. And the Bible tells us that they felt the weight of the moment. The Bible says they were dismayed at his presence. The word for dismayed also means terrified. They had become undone with fear. What is about to happen? And in that moment, you can imagine that their life flashed before their eyes and in their dismay, in that moment, they realized that their greatest problem was how they treated and offended their brother Joseph, who is now the Lord of Egypt. See, it doesn't matter. All all the things they've done in their life, the problems with their father, uh, just the day-to-day realities of of being parents and and, and going to work and, and all the things that come up, in that moment... Their judgment day has come, and they're guilty. They're deserving of judgment. And it is their single greatest problem. And uh, before they're able to even answer a word to Joseph, before they're able to say anything, Joseph begins to speak. Verse 4, And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. I want you to notice in these two verses the forgiveness that's been extended to his brothers. Now he doesn't say the words, I forgive you. But everything he does exemplifies genuine forgiveness. First of all, I love that he clears the room. I love that. The Egyptian officials don't need to know about their sins and their betrayal. Because Joseph is preparing for them. They don't know this yet, but he's, gonna, he's prepared to bring their whole family here. Their, their, their children, their families, everybody. And he is giving them the best possible start. 
if the Egyptians are in the room and, and all of this revelation comes out, just think about the stories, the rumors, all the things. They're going to be going in with a reputation. And Joseph clears the room. Second, instead of treating them like they deserve, instead of treating them like he was treated, he says, come near to me, please. You see, when there's been relational brokenness and betrayal, nearness is severed. Isn't it? I mean, think about your own life. When there's been relational brokenness, all that closeness is abated. You could just feel it. Like, like you can't go near that person until that, that debt, that relational brokenness has been dealt with. Think of times when you fought with your own siblings or times when you fought with your, your spouse or, uh, or, or, or a close friend or a co-worker. You feel that there's just something in the room. Now, there's not actually something in the room, but you feel the tension, you feel the brokenness, you feel like you can't just go up and give that person a hug. You can't just go have a meal together because there's something keeping the closeness at bay. And what does he say? Come near. You, you can come close to me. See, with forgiveness, that nearness is restored. Closeness is resumed. I also want you to notice how he anticipates their feelings of shame and guilt. Those are words you just need to get in your vocabulary. When we commit acts of sin, we feel both guilt and shame. We feel guilty because we've, we've broken a law, we've transgressed in sin. And then we also feel shame, this, 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 uh, this propensity to want to hide and to cover up. And Joseph is not ashamed to be identified as their brother. Think of the healing power of the words, I am your brother. He doesn't say, I am Joseph, Lord of Egypt. He is Lord of Egypt. But right now, he doesn't want to relate to them as the Lord of Egypt. He wants them to remember, I am your brother. Relationship is being restored. It's a healing balm to their shame. You don't have to hide. I don't reject you. I am your brother. And then he tells them, don't be distressed or angry. Your past does not define you. Your sins won't be weaponized against you. This debt, this relational debt has been canceled. And there is, therefore, now no condemnation. You are forgiven. And he says, I know you're going to want to beat yourselves up about it, but don't do that. Don't let the guilt of the past weigh you down. Hear me, it is finished. I am your brother, come near. Your guilt has been covered by love. And if we skip to verse 14, when this whole conversation is over, Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and then he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So in this moment, everybody's crying now. Everybody's hugging each other. They shed tears. And maybe for the first time in their life, jealousy and bitterness and envy doesn't divide them. Instead, they're reconciled and restored by mercy, grace, and love. It reminds me of what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said in a sermon on forgiveness. He said, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done. Or putting a false label on an evil act. 
It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to that relationship. See, forgiveness is not forgetting that something has happened. People often ask, how can I forgive when I can't forget? And and you're not required to forget as if that's what keeps you from forgiveness. Rather, you no longer hold it against them anymore. In verses 4 and 5, Joseph plainly states that he, he's forgiving them of selling them into slavery. You notice he, he says, I am Joseph whom you sold. It's not like he forgot. Like, I, I am Joseph, I forgive you, and I can't really remember why I'm forgiving you. I just know that there's something there. No, he says, I, I know what it was that you did to me. But if you go back to Genesis 41, after he's ascended to his position of power and after it's become clear to him why God has has brought him through all this and revealed his plan to save millions of people from the coming famine, he names his firstborn son Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word for to forget, because he says, God has made me forget all my hardships. Now again, we talked about it when we looked at Genesis 41. It wasn't that he forgot what happened, but because of God's nearness and his presence, because of God, what, was, what God was doing in his life, it gave him perspective. And it, that perspective overruled the feelings. And so it was like he had forgotten. It wasn't that he forgot in the sense of not remembering it. But he's saying God's sustaining grace and his presence in his life had covered over it. And so in light of God's redemptive plan, he made a conscious decision not to hold on to bitterness. See, it doesn't, bitterness just doesn't go away. You actually have to make a decision to want to be reconciled and to let that bitterness go. And so it was in the letting it go, in that sense, that he forgot or he chose not to hold on to the bitterness. And, and so in that letting go of it, he decided to forgive and to hold on to redemption and forgiveness, not bitterness and revenge. Forgiveness, it's not forgetting. It's also not burying your pain either. I know a lot of us cope with pain by burying it, pushing it far down. That's not true forgiveness. Forgiveness is not condoning a hurtful act. It's not making somebody slowly repay it over time. Forgiveness doesn't mean that wounds don't need healing or that consequences magically disappear. It's not convincing yourself of some alternate reality or or trying to make yourself believe that it didn't really hurt or that it was really your fault. None of those things are forgiveness. Forgiveness is not reverse psychology. It's not spinning the story or retelling it so that you can adopt a different version of reality. Forgiveness is not forgetting, downplaying, disregarding, or pretending. Forgiveness is looking at what happened with clarity and vulnerability. It's acknowledging that what happened actually hurt, that it mattered, that it was real. See, if you don't go through that process... You're not going to actually be able to forgive. You've got to really see it for what it is. That's the first step. And then you decide how to move forward. Forgiveness doesn't mean you can't create healthy boundaries. If there's been um, abuse, doesn't mean that you can't create um, wise, discerning boundaries with harmful people who are unwilling to change. Forgiveness doesn't mean that trust is restored overnight. You can actually... Um, 
release relational debt, and yet need to build trust over time. Sometimes full reconciliation and going back to the way things were may not be possible, profitable, or wise. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there's not real work in the soul that needs to happen through counseling to find healing and restoration. What forgiveness means is that you make a choice not to pay back. It means you're giving up, releasing, renouncing your right to pay back. It means you're going to trust that God will mete out justice in his way according to his wisdom. That drive you might feel towards revenge, you release that drive. Like a lot of times revenge leads us to put, put down, push down on the gas pedal towards revenge. As you begin to forgive, you release. You, you just pull that foot up. Slow things down. You don't hold that debt over that person. And so instead of demanding payback, you extend forgiveness. Now this would be a good point to stop and ask. How would you rate yourself on forgiveness? You know those surveys where it's like strongly agree, somewhat agree, neutral, slightly disagree, would you say that you are good at forgiveness, that, that you are a forgiving person, that forgiveness is something, despite all your other flaws, that you strongly agree you're good at? Or maybe you want a scale of 1 to 10. It doesn't really matter, but, but it's important for us to consider some inward reflection. How would you rate yourself on forgiveness? Are you prone to hold grudges? Maybe the Spirit right now is bringing a name to mind. Someone you need to forgive. Maybe far back in your past. Maybe right now. Maybe there's relational brokenness that you're holding on to. Joseph gives us a beautiful picture of forgiveness extended. And I think it's something that we need to grow in as the people of God. We must become a forgiving people. That's our first movement. Forgiveness extended. Now let's keep going to see forgiveness explained. Verse 5. He says, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So not only does Joseph extend forgiveness, but he explains that his forgiveness is driven by faith. And here's what's remarkable. Joseph understands that there is a connection between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Did you see that in the words? He says, you sold me, but God sent me. And he doesn't say one of those is more true than the other. He just says, it's just both true. You did, in fact, sell me into slavery. That's what I'm forgiving you for. But it's also true at the same time, God sent me. See, his brothers really did commit acts of sin that are both evil and needing of forgiveness. But it's also true that God sovereignly and purposefully sent Joseph to Egypt. In fact, three times in these verses, Joseph says, God sent me. 
Both are true. Neither one of these things contradict one another. The words you sold me and God sent me it just gives us a, a, a classic statement of how human responsibility and God's sovereignty remain as these truths in tension. Now, for a guy without a Bible and no formal theological education, Joseph has a robust understanding of how the world works. You see, on the one hand, Joseph knows there are human beings who make free, real, and responsible decisions. And those real, free, responsible decisions have real consequences and we really are held accountable for them. And yet at the same time, you have a purposeful and sovereign God whose will is always accomplished. Not sometimes, not just in the big things, but in everything. Now we have talked quite a bit in this story because I think uh, in one sense you could talk about God's providence and sovereignty in just about every single chapter of the Bible, particularly in the Joseph narratives. But I'm not going to belabor it here because in, in our sermons number 35 and 36, we spent quite a bit of time. And so if you want kind of a refresher on that, sermon 35 and, and sermon 36 uh, go into more detail in God's providence. That said, what I want you to see here is that the sovereignty of God is not some theological abstraction. Like that's for the theologians, as if all of us weren't actually theologians. What I want you to see is that the sovereignty of God is as everyday practical as learning to cook and to use a screwdriver. Just like the everyday realities of life, cooking and cleaning and uh, general home maintenance, th th the sovereignty of God is everyday practical. Everybody needs this theological foundation to provide the foundation by which you can forgive others as you navigate relational conflict. Joseph is explaining not just what forgiveness is, but why he's able to do that. See, when we're hurt by others, we begin to ask deep questions in the recesses of our soul. Like, how could such a thing happen to me? Why would they ever do that to me? What have I done to deserve this? How could I ever forgive them? And the only way you're going to be able to forgive your debtors and not hold it against them is because you come to this place where you can say with Joseph, you sold me, but God sent me. You did this, but God must have a bigger purpose. What you intended for evil, God has intended for good. I want to give you a term to, put, to, to start to create a theological category for you, okay? If you're taking notes, here it is. Redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering. We see that redemptive suffering clearly in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's like the, the principle, the definition of redemptive suffering. God takes what is evil and uses it for good. This whole story teaches redemptive suffering. We see it in Romans 8, 28, Genesis 45, Genesis 50, just to name a few. This helps us make sense of our suffering, and it actually provides the foundation that we can forgive others. In other words, Joseph is explaining to his brothers the lens through which he interprets the hard things in his life. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say you have a hall closet, and you've just thrown a bunch of things into it. Okay, It's one of those where you put the last thing in and you just shut the door. You know what, you know what I'm saying? Clearly none of you have those kinds of closets. But stuff is just piled on top of other 
things. Now, how useful is that closet for you? You're, you're just scared to even open the door because everything's going to come piling out. Stuff is just piled on top of other things. There's no organization. It's not practical. Here's what good theology does. Good theology puts shelving in your closet. Good theology put, puts hooks on the side so you can hang things. Good theology gives you some containers to put stuff in. So not only is there shelving, but now there's um, containers. And these containers have labels on them. All the type A people are going, amen. I love that closet. I want one of those. So when you open the door, things don't pile out on you, but you can see where everything is and you can find it. Right? Good theology puts shelving, containers, hooks on the wall so that as you are going through the normal everyday things of life, stuff's not just piling out and falling on top of you. You can go into that closet and find things. That's what good theology does. That's what these passages are doing. There's lots of stuff that can go on your shelf. What we're doing is giving you a bucket called redemptive suffering. Put Genesis 45 in there. Put Genesis 37 through 50 in there. That's redemptive suffering. So when you're going through hard times in your life, and you're going, how do I make sense of this? You go, oh yeah, in that bucket I've got Genesis 37 through 50. It's a whole story about redemptive suffering. Add into it Romans 8.28 so you can remember... What God, what, 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 uh, God takes the evil things in the world and he uses them for my good. And that just starts to become a bomb to your soul. So that when you say, God, why would you do this? You have an answer to that question. You may not know the exact specific thing or the, 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 the exact specific reason he's doing it in your life. But you know God takes what was intended for evil and uses it for good. That's what these passages are doing. It gives us an organizing system so that we can forgive. Redemptive sovereignty is a theological category that will help you expect. Don't consider it strange when you go through suffering in your life. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise to you that you're going to be sinned against. Now it may surprise you who is sinning against you and what's happened, but the fact of it shouldn't surprise you. Redemptive suffering gives you that expectation. It's a theological category that will help you know God uses all of it for your good. Redemptive sovereignty is a theological category that will enable you to extend forgiveness to those that wrong you because you have a deep and abiding trust that not only have, have you been forgiven, but... All of this is working towards God's sovereign purposes so that you can now extend forgiveness. It gives you a foundation to believe that the hardest things in your life are probably going to be the best things for you. That God so is so committed to your growth, is so committed to your development that he is willing for you to go through hard things in order to form and shape you into the image of Christ. Redemptive sovereignty is going to give you a framework to believe that adversity builds character. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. It's not purposeless. And now I'm not saying go look for it. We don't go look for hard things. But I'm saying when you go through it, because you will, you seek to endure and trust the hand of God instead of spending all of your energy trying to run away from it. Now I'm not saying when these things happen that you can't ask God questions. God is the God who will listen to you. I'm just saying let's ask better questions. Instead of asking, God, how long will this last? Or God, why is this happening to me? Let's start asking, God, what are you trying to form in me through this difficulty? God, what is your redemptive purpose? Because I know you have one. 
So what is it? And God, will you help me endure it so that I may experience all that you have for me? And will you help me forgive as I've been forgiven? See how those questions are built on a theological foundation. They're, com- they're game-changing kind of questions. We've seen forgiveness extended and forgiveness explained. Let's also see forgiveness experienced. Verse 9, Joseph says, hurry up. Go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you've seen. Hurry up and bring my father down here. See, at this point, Joseph is ready to be a family again. Been away from them for 22 years. There's been a lot of time lost with his father and his brother. So he says, hurry up. Go back to Canaan. Tell Jacob the good news. Tell him how God has prospered me. Then tell him to come to Egypt. In fact, bring everyone. Bring your children, your children's children. I want all my nieces and nephews, my great nieces and great... Uh, uh, nephews, I want everybody, bring them all up here and I'm going to set you up in the land of Goshen. Matter of fact, it's the best of all the land of Egypt. And he tells them there's five years still left in the famine and it is time for us to be a family again. And then in verses 16 to 20, we find out that Pharaoh hears about his brothers being there and the same favor that Pharaoh extended to Joseph is now extended to them. And Pharaoh says, in fact, when you get there, Don't worry about packing up all your things. You know why? Because the best of this land will be given to you. So all your pots and your pans and your dishes, don't worry about all that stuff. Just get your people here. And I will provide everything you need. You see how his forgiveness moves beyond the theoretical and it starts to become actual. He is loving and serving and blessing them. The betrayers have become beloved. And when you read this chapter... At no point do you get the impression that they're going to be treated as second-class citizens. Hey, you can come and we'll make sure you're fed, but, right, there's none of that. There's not going to be some smear campaign against them. They're not going to be publicly humiliated. They don't have to serve any time to make up for what they've done. It's quite the opposite. In fact, they're invited into relationship to live with him and enjoy the best of the land. Now, again... There's no one-size-fits-all approach on how forgiveness is extended and how it's experienced. The Bible always assumes when we apply these principles and our everyday real-life applications that we're going to do so with wisdom. But that said, as you forgive someone, there should be some demonstrable difference in your relationship with that person. Here we see Joseph drawing his brothers near so that they can be a family again. He's willing to give in order to see their needs met. He embraces them physically and emotionally. And you can tell his brothers feel the real effects of his forgiveness. Now here's how the chapter ends. Verse 25. So the brothers went up out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. 
But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of his, their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now when the boys return home, Jacob finds out that not only is Benjamin good and well, he finds out Joseph is still alive. And not only that, he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And the Bible says his heart becomes numb. He can't believe it. After all these years, Joseph is still alive. Now here's what's crazy to me. As you're just reading this story, you would expect there to be some conversation about what happened 22 years ago. Hey, Joseph is still alive. Really? What about that whole bloody coat thing? Hey, what about the whole, like, my son is dead thing? None of it's mentioned. And I, I just sat looking at this text all week going, Moses, I, I know that conversation happened. It had to have happened. And yet it's not recorded. And I thought, why? Moses, why is it here? I think, this is just speculation, but I think Moses is trying to show us that when Joseph forgave his brothers, it was like their sins had been removed as far as the east is from the west. See, this story of forgiveness gives us an example to follow as we seek to live out what Paul says in Ephesians 4.32. If the story is the picture of forgiveness, this is Paul's principle of forgiveness. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. You see that in Joseph, he's, he's tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. I think everything about this story I think this is a pretty good story of forgiveness, but I think there's an even better one. And it, it is propelling us, pointing us to the ultimate forgiveness that we need. Now think about it. The temptation when we read this story is to identify with Joseph. Remember at the beginning when I told the story about poor Eileen Wilbur, everyone's identifying with her. I think when we read the Joseph narratives, our natural inclination is to identify with Joseph. No one goes, I am the brother's. Nobody does that. I'm the victim. I'm the hero of the story. I'm the one who extends this amazing kind of forgiveness. But friends, the most honest thing we could do this morning is to recognize that we are more like the brothers than we care to admit. Now what I'm about to say is wildly unpopular in our cultural moment. But my job is not to be popular but to speak plainly. You remember earlier when Joseph revealed his identity and the brothers were terrified and dismayed and they were unable to speak? And they had come undone. Why? Because they were standing face to face with the ruler of Egypt who could rightly and justly call them to account for their sins. And friends, there is coming a day when you and I will stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And on that day, when you stand before him, you will realize that your greatest problem was not what people did to you. Your greatest problem was not the job that you lost. Your greatest problem was not the house you couldn't afford. Your greatest problem was not uh, the achievement that you failed to achieve. Your, your greatest problem was not how your romantic life didn't work out the way you wanted it. Your greatest problem wasn't fill in the blank. Whatever you think right now, your greatest problem is it pales into comparison because on that day, you will realize your greatest problem is that you have offended a holy God. Your greatest problem is that you have failed to give him 
proper gratitude for all that he is and all that he has done for you. Your greatest problem is that you are guilty. And just like the brothers who couldn't speak, they had no defense. Remember when Judah got up there, he said, what can I say? What can I do? We will be the exact same. I don't even think we'd be able to utter a word. We will be utterly speechless because we have no defense. Now listen to me. This is the greatest problem that you and I will face in our lifetime. The biggest issue you've got going on right now is how you've rebelled and transgressed and sinned against God. And this is a universal issue. I don't say this as one exempt. I say this as a fellow sinner and transgressor. And so the greatest question we have to answer is, how will we escape judgment? How will we escape judgment? How can our sins be forgiven when they are clear and our guilt is unquestionable? And thankfully, the same kind of mercy and grace that the brothers received is the same kind of grace and mercy that's extended to us. Just consider this story. What is this story about? Well, it's about how there's people who are saved from famine because God sent a deliverer ahead of the famine to preserve life. It's a story about how relational brokenness is restored through a sacrificial and substitutionary act of love. It's about how the one who they all thought was dead is not only alive, but has ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh. It's a story about how instead of condemnation, the betrayed extends forgiveness to those who don't deserve it so that they can receive it and be welcomed into fellowship to enjoy the best of the land. And not only is this betrayed willing to pardon them and provide for them, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. That's the story of Joseph, but it's also pointing to the greater Joseph, the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, we all need salvation from sin that's wrecked and ravaged our land. We all need pardon for our betrayal as we've turned our backs on God in rebellion. We all need our relational brokenness with God restored. And all of that comes through the sacrificial and substitutionary act of love where Christ dies for our sins in our place so that we can be forgiven. And this same one who we all thought was dead is actually alive. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And not only does he extend forgiveness, but he welcomes us into fellowship and the promise to enjoy the best of the land. You see, it's the same story. And if that weren't enough, not only is Jesus willing to pardon us and provide for us, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Do you know the Bible says that explicitly? Hebrews 2.11. For Jesus who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Friends, your past does not have to define you. You can have your debt canceled. You can experience the peace of knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation because you have been forgiven. Your guilt can be covered by the finished work of the cross. Jesus stands ready to forgive. How does it work? It's really simple. 
We just own that we've done something wrong. We confess. It just means to, to, to identify rightly, to say out loud that you have sinned against the holy God. And then you ask him for forgiveness. And then you're welcomed as family. It's not complicated. It just requires us to swallow our pride and to say that we need something that only he can offer. For all my brothers and sisters in Christ, in the same way that we've been forgiven, like Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray.